Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. of the Seminole Wars. I invoke host privilege this week to invite Stephen Rink, president of the Seminole Wars Foundation, to discuss the many things the Foundation is doing to raise awareness of the Seminole Wars. The Foundation does this, among other endeavors, by publishing printed materials and, yes, digital ones, such as this podcast online. Foundation is much more than that. The not-for-profit Foundation is operated for charitable, educational, and civic purposes. Steve, a retired educator and longtime Seminole Wars living historian and aficionado, informs us of just what the Seminole Wars Foundation is all about and how listeners can join us in our circle to march with us. Most immediately, Steve explains the convocation of Seminole Wars historians coming up in Jupiter, Florida, April 1, 2, and 3. Dick Kasmar spoke with us about this specific convocation, Steve brings us to the history of the Convocation and what the Foundation aims to achieve by holding them every other year. Steve Rink, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you, Patrick. Glad to be here. Steve, you've heard my introduction. You know the things I say you're going to talk about. Let's go for it. And don't forget the Convocation. Okay, fine. I'll be happy to do all those things, I hope. The Seminole Wars Foundation has been around for 30 years. We were founded in 1992. Our mission statement at that time was to identify and preserve sites that were important to the Seminole Wars, and then also to sponsor research about that period of time and to publish our findings. And probably most importantly is to educate the public about the significance of those important times in our history. Along the way, we've done a variety of things, which I can talk about at some different times, but you asked about convocation specifically, and I'm happy to talk about that. Back about 2015, I think it was, one of our members, Joseph Nafsinger, and I got together, and we were talking about some ways that we could really promote the gathering of folks who had common interest in these Seminole Wars, particularly the Second Seminole War, and to be able to have some type of expo, maybe some kind of display, some type of a gathering that would help us to share our ideas, learn some new things, and to just have a general experience of, of getting together with some like-minded people to uh, see what's happening in that, that field of knowledge. And so what that came to pass is in 2017. Steve, how did the annual march to the graves of the fallen soldiers from the Seminole Wars serve as a catalyst for these convocations? We had been doing for a number of years an annual, as I call it, march to the graves in St. Augustine every August. What that was was a reenactment of the procedures that occurred in August of 1842 when there was an official reinterment of the military Seminole War dead of that particular period. And then happened in the cemetery garden of the St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine, which is now part of the National Guard. And we've been doing that for a number of years, and we were partnering with the West Point Society of North Florida, which was represented by both Joe and others, and linked with the Seminole Wars Foundation to give further contact with folks. We were doing that together. In 2017, we thought, well, let's expand it. Let's start with that Saturday activity 
which was the march to the graves and the uh, proceeding down the Marine Street and a reenactment of that during the tournament ceremony in 1842. And let's link that with a more general meeting in the afternoon and to have some guest speakers and to uh, learn about some new ideas and some fresh ways of looking at those, those particular points in time during the Seminole War period. So they really blossomed out into a much larger activity, a much larger event. We started out that Saturday morning after the reenactment. We uh, repaired back to uh, the Episcopal Church in St. Augustine nearby, the St. Francis Barrack Cemetery, which is now a national cemetery. We had a meeting there, we had orientation, and we had uh, speakers talking about various subjects. Our main primo speaker was Patsy West, who spoke about her book, Enduring Seminoles, Hard Times to Hard Rock. And Patsy is a member of a multi-generational family who, uh, since the late 1800s, has been emphasizing the case of the Seminole people in Florida. She's well-known among the tribe and well-known among others. And she's an expert in areas of endeavor. And so she spoke. She was our main speaker, spoke for about an hour. After that, we had um, breakout sessions. And our breakout sessions lasted into the afternoon. And there were four of them. Uh, one of them was about the archaeology and resurrection of Fort King. Second breakout session was about seminal heritage and history, and that was done by one of our members, Chris Kimball. Uh, the third session I did myself, I was the chair of that one, and that was a living historian workshop. A fourth session was done with current research and recent literature, and we had Dr. Jim Denham from Florida Southern College was the chair of that, and he combined with uh, Dr. Jim Cusick from University of Florida and Dr. Michelle Savillich, one of our members, who, who had written a, a paper recently about West Point graduates who were uh, served during the Second Seminole War. Very interesting program. Later that night, we had a, we had a night session with the authors of John and Mary Lou Missile that talked about their recent book, St. Augustine is uh, Healthy and Delightful, Captain John Rogers event in the Second Seminole War, just published at that time in 2017. And Sunday morning, we reconvened again at the Armory in St. Augustine. We had a program there, several speakers, and we also had a presentation honoring our founder, Frank Lombard, and his interest in, in the Seminole Wars. So at that time, we introduced three other people to the audience there, and they were all representative of different areas in Florida, different organizations, which themselves present Seminole War events. There was a person from Fort King, that was David Laffey, from Waxahachie folks, and that was Dick Kasmar, and also from the Okeechobee Battlefield, and that was Dowling Watford. And we introduced them as the future their organizations would sponsor future convocation of Seminole War historians every two years, so it was biennial. And in fact, we did two years from that point in 2019. We had our second biennial convocation of Seminole War historians in Okeechobee area, and not just there, but actually on the grounds of the Brighton Seminole Reservation, which is a real treat. And that brought in a whole host of other possibilities. Uh, we had speakers there, several of them from the tribe itself, including the late uh, Justice Willie Johns, Chief Justice Willie Johns of the Seminole Supreme Court, talked about the history of his people. Uh, we had a session from Dr. Paul Backhouse, who at the time was the director of the Octokotiki Museum down at the Big Cypress, and he gave a presentation there about uh, what they have and what their plans are in the future. We also toured the uh, Seminole Administration Building at the Brighton Reservation, a guided tour by some of the folks who worked there. We had a session done by Pedro Zepeda on Seminole Warriors, and another fourth session that afternoon by Dr. Andrew Frank on Osceola. At the afternoon, we had a session with John and Mary Lee Missile, again, the authors, coupled with Joe Kanesh, a professor from FSU, on the third Seminole War, a book that they were in the midst of writing at that time. We had a nice barbecue dinner, and then we had entertainment that evening by a, a full-blood Seminole recording artist, Rudy Youngman. A very pleasant uh, evening that we had to spend together. 
The next day, Sunday, we met at the Okeechobee Battlefield of Swift State Park on the actual area where there was uh, kind of the largest battle of the Second Seminole War that happened. And we had speakers there. Uh, Archie Marshall at the time talked about the Battle of Okeechobee. There were other people there from the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution. We had Steve Carr, an archaeologist, talking about artifacts. And I myself was also speaking about the Frank Wilmer Legacy Award that we presented then uh, posthumously to uh, Billy Cypress. So that was a really well-done convocation. And uh, a good thing about these is that every time that a group does a convocation, we have a duty, responsibility, I guess you could say, to be a part of the planning group of the following convocation. And it was no different uh, that time. I was part of that planning group, and so was Joe Nastinger for the Okeechobee group. And Dowling Watford, Mayor Watford from Okeechobee, uh, was kind enough to lend his support as well as I did, to the Luxahatchee Battlefield Preservations to sponsoring the next one happening in Jupiter in April this year, the third biennial convocation. We had to wait a year for that because of the COVID restrictions limitations. So now the uh, biennial convocations will be every other even-numbered year. So where do you have in mind for future convocations? We're looking forward to a number of places. I've asked for a king several times if they could be next, and you know, God bless them, they have a big project involved with building a new visitor center. It's a multi-million dollar project, and they very much want to do the convocation, but they would like to have their visitor center completed before that time, and I agree with that. So we keep on pushing them back into the future. So we're going to be restructuring the order that we do this. And Steve, might you also be looking to host a convocation uh, closer to home, say Something near the um, Bushnell Homestead? 2024, we can have the people from the Day Battlefield Society near Bushnell to be the host for the fourth convocation. So that would put Fort King uh, in 2026, and hopefully all things being right and stars being properly aligned, we can get the fifth convocation to be hosted there. What about other parts of Florida that had Seminole War battles take place? Yes, we do. We've been in touch with some people uh, who work and play in, in the Panhandle area. They've been offering some ideas for us up there, not just in Florida, but there's even some sites in Alabama, a lower creek, too, that we can look at for the possibility of some information in the future. We're always open for more. We might, if this does have legs and stretches out into the next decade or two, uh, we might look at going through some of the older sites again, maybe some new information and some new ways to look at what we've done in the past. How did you settle on the term convocation as opposed to gathering or gaggle? When I first talked about this title of the Convocation of Seminole War Historians, I did get a little blowback on that because some of the folks who were interested said, well, I'm not a historian, I'm just a reenactor, or I'm not a historian, I just like to learn about these things. I corrected them both and I said, listen, I said, don't use the word just when you say you're just a reenactor or you're just somebody who has an interest. By the fact that you are interested, that makes you an historian. Either professional or amateur, you're just as well as anybody else, and uh, you should have interest in coming. So I think that did help to perk up some people who had their doubt. They thought it was just for academics to come, and that's not the case. Academics do show, and in good numbers as well, that's for sure. But all of us can be involved in that. We all have something that we can contribute. So we had a variety of people come from all walks of life. The only commonality that they had was that they had an interest in the Seminole Wars. I've heard a colloquial term, history hunters. That's exactly what we do. 
not only do we hunt the history, but once we find it, we research it more and talk about it and expose it to the public. That's exactly what we do. And really, you know, history hunters do more than just find. It's not just to hunt and pick or search and gather. What we do is the information that we find, we take it, massage it, add to it, learn more about it, and make it relevant to people here during present times. We can draw comparisons to what's happened in the past to what's happening now in the present. At Dade Battlefield of Zurich State Park, oftentimes there are staff rides that happen there. And a staff ride is something that was, oh, I, the first staff rides came about in this country during and after the Civil War in the 1860s, where there were military groups who came and visited battlefields and tried to, I mean, after the battle, after the war was over, and tried to analyze what happened, where it was, why it came out the way it did. Well, those staff rides are still happening today, but military officers who come to the various sites around the country where there were military engagements and to learn more about them and to compare what's happened there to other types of, of engagements. And I'm so happy about it because I'm always, or almost always asked to join in on the staff rides at Dade Battlefield because I portray an um, Irish immigrant soldier who joined the Army during the Second Seminole War. So I use him as a first-person influencer and describe what we thought about those times, what we as the soldiers felt like. There are some of the old reenactors along the trail that we use for their fighters to talk about their aspect, their points of view. And what we do is we try to compare it to what's happening today. And why I'm bringing this up is, is that during our very first staff ride back in 2012, it was by the Florida National Guard, the adjutant general of the Florida National Guard at that time, Major General Emmett Titshaw, he told me after it was all over, he said, you know, Steve, he says, what you told us about asymmetric warfare, about jungle warfare, where there was an invading force doing battle with the indigenous people who knew the land, that he says, that's exactly what's happening outside the wire in Afghanistan today. And today was 10 years ago. And he said, my people, I think, learned a lot by your presentations. And I really appreciate the fact that you did this. We just were on cloud nine after that, Patrick, all the reenactors and the folks from the park who were there. And it really brought it home to us as to what kind of help we would be for people in the present times with what we know about the past and to share that with them. The Seminole Wars Foundation has a threefold purpose. Please talk about it. Our initial purpose has been research, publication, and education, and we're doing all three of those, and we continue to do them. Most recently, we've been expanding our public education by having this podcast program that you yourself have developed in our name, and we appreciate that. This is getting us out into the public, getting our name known, and also bringing in people from a variety of places, again, having a common interest and common knowledge about the wars and, and talk about their particular portion things that they do to be able to bring it more into the reality of the modern listener. We also have been participating in the development of the Fort King project. We actually began working with the Fort King people back in 2001 when there was a suggestion from our folks about, can something happen up at Fort King? Can we develop that and, and get that property preserved and put it aside as a park? This is before my time with the foundation, but early on the foundation was a part of that to bring the idea about the Fort King property being brought back more into what it was like at the time and to serve that as a teaching tool, an educational tool too. There's been a variety of different places around the state where we have taken part in giving our ideas and suggestions about how to develop it further, not just the properties itself, but how to expand it with reenactments. Seminole War reenactments are near and dear to this foundation's heart. Why is that, Steve? 
the one that we started initially, even before the foundation started. It's, one of its co-founders, Frank Lomer, began working with the folks at the Day Battlefield of Stewart State Park to uh, create a reenactment there back as far as 1980 and has served as an example and as a teaching tool to other groups who wish to do their own reenactments and their own types of events at their property. Over the years, we've had folks from Wachtenachie Battlefield Preservationists. We've had people from Fort King. We've had people from Payne's Creek near Bowling Green and Okeechobee, and must have been other areas I couldn't even think of right now, all visit Dade Battlefield reenactment, talk with us and take part in it to get the ideas as to how they can go ahead and to uh, emulate that on their own properties. I mentioned Frank Walmart. Frank Walmart, after the reenactment started, he did begin as, as one of the co-founders of the Civil Wars Foundation. So the foundation is being looked at and being considered as, as kind of like a, a common clearinghouse for information, for sources and for examples of what to do with that information as you go forward. How did Frank Lauer get interested in the Seminole Wars? I don't believe it's a story because it's still famous now. It's been sold so often. Frank had purchased property and was living since 1957 in Hernando County, only about maybe 15 minutes away from the Day Battlefield. And he visited there in the early 60s, asked for information, and he was handed one brochure which had minimal information at best. He asked if they could find out more, and they said they didn't have any more than that at the park at that time. So that began his quest for the next half century, looking for information. Part of that quest was to research the route that the soldiers used, that Dade's men used when they traveled from Fort Brooke in Tampa toward Fort King in Ocala in 1835 to reinforce the garrison there. And along the way, there were several stops. They took five days to get up to Dade Battlefield, where it is now. And Frank did the research on where that route was along the 14th Trail, where it went, where the stops were. And he gathered a group together to reconstruct and to actually reenact that route. He did so in a civilian gear in 1963 and made it up to Dade Battlefield, which was what his intention was as far as Major Dade got himself. That effort was redone repeatedly. After that time, it was done again by Boy Scout, a Boy Scout group from Pinellas County. And then it was done again by Frank and his people, this time dressed as they learned what the uniforms were like and the equipment. They dressed in the uniforms, carried the muskets and carried the gear, just as Major Dave's command did in 1835. They did that again in 1988 and went the entire way from Fort Brook to the Dade Battlefield. There were other groups, smaller groups after that, that did the same thing for publicity's sake in the early 2000s. There was a group of about uh, six to eight reenactors who did that and uh, ran into some trouble along the way for traffic and so forth, but they made it through successfully. And now there's talk, and I've been involved in that, about why don't we complete Major Dade's march, what it would have been. So now there's been talk with our partners at Fort King to try this again and to begin near the site of Fort Brook, which is now the Tampa Bay Convention Center, and to go as far as we can along the accurate Fort King Trail and include Dade Battlefield, stop there for a rest possibly, and then go on further and finally finish what Major Dade had attempted to do in 1835 and reach the now-built fort at Fort King in Ocala. The foundation even sponsored a virtual march to get you from Tampa to Ocala. That's true. The virtual march came about under your auspices, as you know, Patrick, which emulated some marches that you did in Europe and elsewhere, the Hadrian's Wall March, I'm thinking about. And that came about about a year and a half ago. We began to advertise that, and we had 50 people who ended up signing up and perhaps uh, 40 of them approximately finished the march. But it was all virtual, as you said. Went from Fort Brook to Fort King, the whole way, 103 miles. 
any kind of exercise, not just walking or marching, but any kind of exercise at all, which could be transformed into the equivalent of, of miles, to make that journey. And they were given a certain amount of days to do it. They were given prompts along the way. Uh, they were given little cyber awards along the way, having postcards as such being sent to them to their computer about what they've accomplished, what they've found at these sites, what, the, what yet is to come. It was very popular, and I think we should do better again sometime. But it also raised the awareness, and we've got a lot of it to remember in a way, too. And I'm proud to say that uh, even though it was done after he passed away, that we had several of Frank Lomer's family members who won us with that. And that was a real honor to have them take part with us. And part of that, that virtual march was also inspired by Jerry Morris. What was Jerry's take? <laughs> Jerry Morris is a member of our foundation and a dear personal friend to many of us. He was reading the newspaper in Tampa about 1987 or 88 and saw this article about some folks who were going to be doing this crazy thing about pretending they were soldiers in the 1830s and marched in full gear from Tampa up to Gay Battlefield. And he thought, gee, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so he was introduced to the foundation. But he didn't take part in that march, participated in it. As a result of that, became one of our best members. He wrote several articles. He wrote a pamphlet. He wrote, uh, he wrote a book. It ends up being our best-selling book on the 14th Road. One of those pamphlets discussed what soldiers ate on the march. The pamphlet that you may mention to is called An Army Marches on Its Stomach. Jerry had developed this presentation, which was unique, and still is unique, about soldiers' food, what they ate, what kind of gear they had with them, what kind of equipment that they had to carry with them. He had a tent. He had his whole arrangement uh, with chairs and a table. And he actually went from one summit of war of the little event to another and was uh, acting the part of a uh, military instructor as to uh, how to prepare food that the soldiers would eat along the way. Very, very popular, very well attended, wherever he went. Jerry still does that, but for reasons that the president has lifted us get a little bit older, he found it more amenable to have others transport his tent, his chair, and his equipment for him. And uh, we do that now. The foundation makes sure that uh, we can take his equipment and set up wherever he needs to be. We sponsor him that way, and he still puts on the uniform, and he puts on his show. The pamphlet that he wrote is one of our bestsellers. It goes into not just about the food itself, but about the soldier's life, what they had to put up with. Jerry's one of our favorite people. He seemed to always be percolating with ideas, and then he came up with this one, a book for children about the Seminole Wars. Jerry did this because, you know, we've had a lot of material published, but none of it is geared toward children, younger children, beginning readers, maybe elementary, upper elementary age. And so he was told, well, if you want to write one, Jerry, go ahead. And he says, I gosh, I will. I did. At the time, he was visiting elementary and middle school classrooms in Hillsborough County, where he lives, doing green presentations. And he asked the kids there for their help. And there's a contest that were held at least in one school near his home for ideas and drawings and so forth and some of the ideas he incorporated in, in a small children's book that he wrote and he even put uh, one or more of the, of the drawings that were done by the children into the book to illustrate what this ether, fictional dog ether, would look like. Jerry is well schooled in the past but he's always looking toward the future so part of the reason that we'd like to have it around. Tell us about one facet of the Foundation's publishing strategy about the Seminole Wars. One of the functions that we do as a foundation is to not just research and produce new information, but to look at what's already been done. And I didn't realize when I first became involved with the group just how much work there was out there that had been done by people who were contemporaneous to the times, people who actually experienced what was going on during the Seminole Wars. 
These are first-person accounts, and they provided information that the researchers just loved because it was a you-are-there type moment for them. Several of them that we've looked at are actually republished themselves, had them reprinted. Sometimes we've added information to them and editorial remarks, but we have reprinted Henry Prince Diaries into a new volume called Amidst a Storm of Bullets, and that was edited by Frank Lomer. We looked at that information about what Prince experienced on his own terms during the war, Second Seminole War. There were others as well. There was W.W. Smith had written a book on the Seminole War campaigns, some of which he experienced personally, others he heard about at the same time they had occurred. And he reported upon them with, with great detail. And we took that information and we, we published it with some wonderful editing and comments of explanatory nature by one of our members, Deborah K. Hyper. That right now is one of our most popular books that we're putting out. There have been other volumes that we've done by various authors that we have sent to different publishers, most importantly, Applewood Press in Ohio. They've published a number of different books that we have. Red Patriots was one that's been published and republished many times over the years. We have, have a large library of books, but also we have a large sales library that we'd like to share with the public. There's always room for more, and there's a lot of information that's already been out there that we have republished and, and reprinted. And some things that we look at that are more specific, like for instance, our pamphlet series has been very popular. One of the most popular ones has been the English Seminole Vocabulary book that Deborah Harper had written. She did a lot of research on that, and we have them going both ways, English to Seminole and Seminole to English. Of course, you can't just say Seminole. There are two languages. They're both claimed by the Seminoles, the uh, Muscogee Creek and then there's the Amikasuki. And, and she looks at those both. We also have some information done. Our first convocation, that's been in pamphlet form. We have some that's done. We have an index to Seminole War articles in Florida Historical Quarterly Journal. And Luis Pacheco, yes, we have one of those. I think about eight pamphlets that we have in our series. But aside from pamphlets, you're also looking to publish a collection about the Dade Battlefield. This land, these men, has been a tour de force. We've been working on this for almost 10 years, and it's a compendium of stories and information and reports from a variety of authors, all of them either present or past Seminole War Foundation members. And we're looking at everything that we can about Dade's battle from all sources, from the Seminole, from the military, from civilian sources. We've been looking at it as a structure of uh, comparing news reports as it was reported all over the country and all over the world for that matter, what happened in Florida in 1835 and after. We're looking at it from even from the standpoint of what happened after the war was over into the present time. One of the members has been working on a book like that for a while, and a portion of that book is being put into this compendium that we're still trying to get properly indexed and properly footnoted and have it published. We were hoping to get it published this year, and that's going to be a really, uh, really wonderful volume that can answer virtually all the questions uh, from every point of view that there can be about, about Dade's battle, which was the beginning of the Second Seminole War, the longest war, the longest Indian war in American history. So we have a number of authors, as I said, and one is Alcyon Amos, and her particular chapter is entitled... On both sides, the history of two Afro-descendants who took part in the Dade battle. And the two people that she's talking about would be um, Louis Fatio Pacheco, who was the guide that was used. He was the bilingual guide used by Major Dade and Captain Gardner as they made their way to, in that infamous day. And the other one is, done, is about Dembo Factor. Yes, Denbo Factor, who'd later go on to be part of the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts. Back then, 1835, he was with the Seminole, 
and they were attacking the Dade column. Yeah. Well, another portion of it, one of our members, he's our secretary to the board and has been for many years, Dr. Samuel Smith, actually has done two chapters. The poor fellow, he's been working <laughs> both, both day and night, uh, whenever he can fit in some time to do this. His is also a collection, you might say. One of his chapters is called Historiography of the Battle. And what he's done is to take the accounts of the battle that come from a whole variety of sources and to link them together in some type of a chronological sense to show how it has been reported by authors and by newspapers and by others who have some information about it. The other one he wrote is called Publications of the Dave Seminole Battle, a bibliography with commentary and excerpts. Something similar to the, to the historiography, but a lot more detailed in terms of actual sources that are being quoted, what people have said about the battle from their, their perspective, their particular point of view. And it's really a large amount of research that's done, not just in Florida, but also in Washington, the Library of Congress. He's even ventured out to Oklahoma, to the Seminole Nation out there, and done research and reported about their point of view and, and what their view is about the whole episode. We also have a, a chapter in that large book called This Land, These Men, a chapter by a member, Jesse Marshall, which is about the John Thomas story. Now, John Thomas is controversial because he was a member of Dade's command who left with the rest from Fort Brooke and reportedly came back early because he had an injury crossing the Hillsborough River. Subsequent to that, years later, there was evidence that was unearthed by Jesse Marshall that perhaps this fellow John Thomas actually did make it all the way and witnessed the battle and escaped and got back to the fort before anybody else, and was able to relate the story of the battle. And there's people that have eyewitnesses to his reports and have given written testimony to that afterwards. So that's, that's still controversial. Did John Thomas make it or did he not? And both sides have good evidence of that. In fact, we're, we're planning now on having a, a panel discussion in one of our future events in St. Augustine, uh, debating that very topic. One of the chapters I've written myself, and that's on the history of the battlefield after the battle, from 1836 to the present time. What happened there? To, who owned it? When? When did it pass from, from federal ownership to private individuals? So what did they do with it? How did it develop into a park? The efforts that went through there, and how did it get to the point that it is today, where it's both recreational and historical, with an annual event that commemorates and tries to reconstruct what the reenact, what the battle was in time. All those are part of that portion that I humbly submitted for that book itself. And also, we're still considering having an epilogue about the origins of the Seminoles, which itself is a controversial topic. Our vice president, Rosa Sophia, has recommended that we include that in that volume as well. And she also is, is the proofreader, and she's the editor for that large volume. Some of our listeners would say, that's a start. So what else you got cooking at the foundation? Beyond that, we have something else which is very exciting to me. After our founder's passing in 2019, in late 2019, uh, we discovered uh, in his files, which he donated to the foundation, we discovered the remains of two unpublished manuscripts that he had written. One of them had finished, one of them is almost finished, and needs a little touch-up toward the end, we think, to get it ready for publication. The one is, is called Show Me That River, and that is a thinly veiled biographical sketch of Frank Lawmer himself, and more importantly, not about him as much as it is about what he's done and his family and how they developed and how they grew into people who were interested in the Seminole Wars. And the other one is something which is subsequent manuscript to his already published novel called Nobody's Hero, and that's about Ransom Clark. And the manuscript that he wrote is called 
somebody's hero. Again, about Ransom Clark, but about more information that was discovered and developed and put into written form after the initial publication. And then these are both novels, by the way, but they're just about actual facts. So they're both about Ransom Clark. Information came to light that Frank had not been aware of before, and he put that into his, to his second, as yet unfinished manuscript of the novel. Frank left behind literally thousands of items. Many of them were books. Even more of them are research documentation that he had done himself or had others do for him. Mostly it was the latter. A lot of it is just handwritten in his own hand. Some of it he typed and put into word processing. But he was just voracious. Once he had this passion developed for the Second Seminole War, and his specialty was, of course, David's battle, but it was much more than that. That led the second half of his long life. He lived to be 92 years of age. In the second half of his life, those 46 years, his big passion was the Seminole Wars. And what he did, and we are reaping the benefits of this now, his huge library that he had, and not just about the Seminole Wars, but about anything, virtually all aspects of American history, he bequeathed to the Seminole Wars Foundation in our care. We are now the happy curators of that collection. Having said that, it's been a challenge to curate because it's been so massive and so diverse that we've had to rethink about the way in which we're cataloging, storing, exhibiting, to the point that one of our members purchased a home in nearby Dade's Battle, and he graciously allowed us to rent for a very small amount of money, perhaps three-fourths of, of that house for our own purposes, for a meeting room, for a library, for offices and storage. And so we're now still, uh, after uh, coming up on two years in that structure, we're still trying to get it to the point where we feel as if that we'll be able to soon welcome in researchers from the outside, outside meeting, out beyond our own foundation, to come in and to enjoy the uh, fruits of Frank Walmer's work and ours following, following his to make it into a really true research center of the Seminole Wars that we'll be proud of for anybody to come in. I just met with our treasurer today, Deborah Hopper, and we agreed upon a time within the next 60 days that we'll probably spend several days at the headquarters homestead in Bushnell to go through just the office material itself to get that in proper format to separate the voluminous files that Frank has left from into research files from office and business files and correspondence and that kind of thing. That's going to be a labor of love to do that, but a labor indeed, a labor intensive for those several days we're working on it. <laughs> Clearly you and Debbie are all over the place in a good way. Tell us about this t-shirt project that Debbie and the renowned painter Jackson Walker have partnered to do. The T-shirt project, again, has been an inspiration from Deborah Harper, who was our treasurer. She's been trying to, along with some others, trying to uh, conceive of some, some efforts that would interest more people, not just those who are uh, amateur or professional historians, but interest the general public into what we do, something that would be colorful, something that would be fun to use. And she came up with the idea about having not just T-shirts. We don't call them T-shirts. We call them wearable art. One of our longtime members, and in fact, now he is a life member, is the famous artist Jackson Walker of Orlando. Jackson's work has been well-received and renowned by the realism that he has put into his oil paintings and sketches, most of which deal with the Second Seminole War. Debbie has gone to Jackson and has combined with him and his knowledge and his artistic flair and with her business sense, they have developed this line of wearable art shirts, which has our a logo on the front, left pocket area. And on the back of the shirt is a rendition, a beautiful multiple color copy of one of a number of Jackson's paintings. 
dealing with the Seminole Wars. The black T-shirt with his painting of the armed Seminoles on, on the back of it. And we've been wearing that ourselves, and we've been distributing that to, to people. Oftentimes, they're being purchased by our members and by the public. And it's getting out there. The rendition is a portrait of two of our reenactors, two of our several reenactors, and they're good on it. The next one coming out will be coming out within days from, from this podcast. And they will be already out by the time this is over. And that's going to be called Eyes Over the Okeechobee. And that's another shirt, uh, a blue shirt this time, again, with our logo on the front. And on the back is panoramic painting that Jackson had done of... Colonel Zachary Taylor, a horseback, looking over the with military folks in the back trying to put together some type of a plan of action for the next enterprise that they have with the tribe. So that's going to be coming out soon, and we'll be journeying to the Okeechobee battlefield in a few weeks and be able to have that down there with us as their grand debut. We hope it gets a lot of attention. And by the way, Jackson Walker will also be present in the flesh at that event with that painting that was used as the guide for the first T-shirt that we did, first World War Art shirt, the Arm Seminole. And uh, we anticipate that Jackson will be with us on many occasions in the future, not just to show his work, not just to have T-shirts that are there available for sale, but also to meet with the public and to tell the public more about what he does and to tell about how he has been inspired to use the history of Florida, and particularly, especially the Second Seminole War, to be the inspiration for the wonderful work of art that he has produced. Okay, Steve, bring this to a closure. Talk about membership in the Seminole Wars Foundation and what it has to offer. Membership in the Seminole Wars Foundation is $25 a year, and there are benefits from that that you can achieve. There is a great 20% discount on all the books that we sell, and there are many. There is invitation to our general meetings that's free admission to those and free food and other kinds of little surprises that might come your way. Most importantly, people to have good access to people with the same mindset, people with the, who are thinking about our history and about the importance of the, of the Second Seminole War, not just the Florida history, but the significance of it for the nation. We repeated every podcast, but let's try it again. What's the Seminole Wars Foundation internet address? SeminoleWars.us is the website for our foundation. And going there, you can get more information about how to become a member. And we have a whole variety of memberships from the individual the $25 up to the life member of $500 and all in between. I recently became a life member myself, and there are others who have done that uh, because we, we know the value of it and we like to be able to help along the good work that the foundation is, is trying to do. Steve Rink, once again, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. My pleasure, sir. Thank you for doing this. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.